Hello, welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. The week's not over yet, and it's even so a pretty full one. The Home Office is still grappling with a fallout from the clash between its now ex-Permanent Secretary, Philip Rutnam, and its still-there Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Check out the special podcast we recorded on Monday for more on that. The government has also set out its battle plan for coronavirus, something which could yet derail its agenda, bring the country to a standstill or something like that. We'll be looking at that in more detail over the next weeks, perhaps months, assuming we can all make it to a studio. And at the same time, trade negotiations are getting underway with both the US and the EU at the same time, as the UK seeks post-Brexit deals with both. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. The dramas of the Brexit battles of the last parliament feel a really long time ago. But the talks over our future relationship with the EU and that trade deal with the US, if it happens, they represent the toughest and most important negotiations that this country has undertaken in decades. So what does the UK really want? Can it be secured by the end of the year? And we're not doomsters, but what are the hazards ahead? Later in the podcast, we'll be looking at the Universal Credit Programme nearly a decade after it was first introduced with Nick Timmins, who's the author of a brand new report for us on this colossal change for the social security system. What needs to be done to make this much maligned reform work? And as we approach the 10th anniversary of the formation of the coalition, we speak to Norman Lamb, former minister, former Lib Dem leadership candidate, and for a while a Lib Dem MP who was not opposed to Brexit. We'll see what he thinks of the party's current predicament. Spoiler alert, he has some very harsh things to say. On with the show. We've got a fantastic panel in the studio today. Joe Owen is the director of our Brexit programme. Welcome back. Hello. Some studios have asked you to keep your distance this week, I gather. Yeah, I've had coronavirus quarantine. I was in northern Italy a few weeks ago. No, I didn't even know that. I'm not that far from you. It was all safe, all fine with the... uh, the, the worst part was them calling me while I was on public transport and asking me, and that is not the place where you want to say, yeah, I've recently been to Northern <laughs> Italy, so <laughs> I had to tell them I'll call them back. <laughs> Glad you survived that. Alex Thomas leads our work on the civil service. Alex, hi. Hello. On Monday's podcast, you predicted that the Rutnam patel bust-up would have a lasting effect on the civil service. Do you still think so? I, I, I think it will. I think the, the waters are starting to close over, but I do think this will have a... Uh, a significant uh, ongoing effect on the on the civil service. It's not going to be the last we say about it, I'm sure. We're delighted to be joined today as well by Philip Rycroft, who was until last year the Permanent Secretary of the now defunct Department for Exiting the European Union. Thanks for coming here today. Great pleasure to be here. I have to ask you, what did you think when one of your former colleagues quit in such a dramatic fashion? I, like everybody else, was very surprised. This is literally unprecedented. Uh, I think... There is a long way to go with this one. And what it says about not just relations within the Home Office between ministers and the civil service, but between civil servants and this government uh, is going to be very interesting as this story unfolds. This government in particular? Yes. And you left the civil service almost a year ago, March 29th last year. What's the last day of a permanent secretary normally like? Uh, Great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so I, I I had a couple of weeks after I left Dexu just to sort of uh, uh, sort stuff out and then um, uh, went away with, with my wife and the dogs to Tyree, which is one of the Inner Hebridean Islands, where at the uh, end of April, early May, nothing is happening or not very much is happening. Uh, the sun shone and the wind blew and it was a brilliant decompression. And that's how I got over the, the trauma of ending my career as a civil servant.
get back to Brexit or beyond the EU, as we're starting to call it. Talks are underway with the EU to determine the UK's future relationship with the bloc, and a mandate for a trade deal with the US has also been published. There's an awful lot to do by the end of this year, the point at which the transition period comes to a close, and EU rules as they were no longer apply. Joe, your terrific team painstakingly compared the EU's and the UK's mandates for talks, and how far apart are they? I think the short answer is not that far. I mean, in comparison to where we've been over the last few years, I think this is the first time where both sides have got a similar view of what the deal looks like, the outcome looks like. There are, yes, some really sticky issues, but unlike previously, there are kind of technical middle grounds that exists where if there is, if either side comes to this negotiation with half the amount of flexibility they showed in the autumn, a deal is definitely possible. It's just not a particularly ambitious deal. I have to say, there's the most optimistic tone I've heard of <laughs> anyone talking about this for a good uh, few weeks. Do you think a deal is possible by the end of the year? Yeah, I do think a deal is possible by the end of the year. It just requires um, enough political will. I mean, the technical middle grounds all exist, whereas previously the two sides were almost talking past one another about their vision for what this relationship would look like. Now they're both saying, yeah, this is going to be a free trade agreement and it would be zero zero tariffs and zero quotas and we just need you know there are some tech, there are other complicated issues around the side but there are models that exist for those relationships in a way that previously it was really difficult to see what those models were when the two sides were all right well i'm going to come back to some of these points in northern ireland in, in particular but philip you were um looking at a lot of this and you wrote last month that this is without doubt the greatest challenge the british civil service has faced in a generation do do you what do you reckon about the chances of a deal by the end of the year? See, it's certainly possible that there will be a deal by the end of the year. It's worth just being clear what deal we're talking about. This is a trade deal. Uh, it is m- going to be mainly about industrial goods, probably agri-food as well, zero tariff, zero quota, uh, but putting in place the modalities for managing a border. People need to understand that, that talking about free trade agreement is a little bit of a misnomer. <laughs> this, we, what we're really talking about is a deal to have rather less free trade than we have now, and it's about mitigating the impacts of that. Uh, even if a deal done, there will be a border f- between the UK and the EU for trade in both goods and services. As Joe has said, this isn't a particularly ambitious deal thereafter. Uh, and there are benefits in getting a deal done as opposed to what I'm not meant to say, mention now, the possibility of no trade deal, the so-called Australia option. Yeah. Um, uh, there is, it, it makes sense economically for both sides to achieve that deal, uh, but there are some big obstacles in the way. But even achieving that deal leaves an awful lot of other stuff that would still need to be negotiated. We're not going to stop negotiating with the EU at the end of this year. This is going to carry on for some time. So where, do, where does the Northern Ireland question fit in? Because we've got the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, saying, no, there are not going to be any checks um, on things moving between uh, mainland uh, Britain and, and Northern Ireland. And um, and you've got the EU saying that's a, a breach of the political um, declaration that you've signed and, and that's an outrage. We'd be very clear that the Northern Ireland Protocol is now a matter of uh, international law. It's the part of the withdrawal agreement that both sides have signed up to. Uh, working out the, the mechanisms for managing that should not be part of the negotiations on the future relationship. Both sides have obligations to put those mechanisms in place to manage uh, the trade between 
GB and Northern Ireland uh, as part of that deal. Uh, now, whether or not uh, uh, there are checks depends a little bit on how you define checks, because the consignments going from GB into Northern Ireland undoubtedly will need paperwork accompanying them in order to demonstrate what's happening to those products once they land uh, in Northern Ireland. So the, the obligation on the UK authorities to ensure that they know what's in those trucks and in those consignments uh, is part of this of this system. How many of those consignments need physical checks is a different matter. And that's something that the Joint Committee is going to have to work out. How do you manage that flow of trade to give the assurance to both sides that what is going on into, going into Northern Ireland meets the conditionalities of the deal? There are two things I'd say on the Northern Ireland thing. I mean, one, I think the UK at the moment's position is actually deeply irresponsible. They're kind of just claiming there won't be any checks. Because if you speak to people in Northern Ireland, the businesses there, the politicians there, they say, we don't like this deal, but we need to live with it. And it needs to be in place by the end of the year. And it's impossible to have meaningful engagement with the UK government at the moment because the Prime Minister is saying, it doesn't exist, there's no checks. And so just trying to work out what this could mean is being held back by the kind of need to put this political narrative over. And the second point I'd make is that by appearing to kind of roll back on what was agreed in October, you're just getting the EU's backs up. I mean, if we're going into this negotiation asking for trust in certain areas, the EU is going to be more inclined than ever to want things down to the letter of the law with a dispute resolution mechanism in case the Brits roll back again. And so it's hard to see what kind of strategy this is serving because at the moment it looks like we're likely to be less ready at the end of the year and we're just antagonising the people we need to negotiate with. Alex, Alex you, you were in the thick of it in the first round. I mean, yeah. are we going to be ready? Uh, well, less in the negotiations, more in the, the, yeah. no, the no deal um, uh, planning, which uh, is what, what this reminds me of. I mean, the thing I'd add to what Joe was saying was don't, don't underestimate the size of the implementation task uh, for getting uh, you know, practical nuts and bolts. Philip was talking about the operation of the border, um, uh, the, 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 the size of, uh, of, of, of just that practical uh, piece of work. And uh, it's, it's pretty unclear from the outside now as to how far that work is happening and what's what's actually going on, uh, how the how the money is going into it, and how the is this is going work, work that has to be done before um, a trade yes. deal or before the end of the year? Yes, it's, so it's work like- that needs the, oper- the the operation of the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol needs quite a lot of work, and it's not clear that that's happening. Well, the multiplicity of challenges here. The Northern Ireland Protocol nests within the broader challenge of managing. Uh, the new trade relationship. This is creating a trade border that has not existed for the last few decades between the UK and the EU. So that means IT systems on the border. It means recruiting new customs staff. Critically, it means all traders understanding what the rules and regulations are so that they're ready when they get up to the border. They've got the right paperwork in order to get on into the, into the system. But this goes a lot wider than that. There are a lot of powers coming back from Brussels to the UK. Those powers need to be accommodated in, into the, the British regulatory state. Uh, and that is So what kind of thing? Are we thinking like competition what, policy or exactly about, 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 about policy state? So we'll just take one, one other example on financial services. 
services. So all the European authorities that the whole power over that to manage the financial services system across the EU at the moment, those powers come back to the UK. Who's going to manage them? What's the balance of authority there between the Bank of England, the Treasury, uh, the Prudential Regulation Authority, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority? Um, where's the, the transparency around all of that? Where's the sort of authorising environment for that? How is that whole system going to work? Uh, and that's just one example amongst many of the sorts of challenges the British state is going to face. And allied to that, of course, you've got the the domains where you've got to have new rules because the old rules Mm. aren't suitable, such as immigration. And just to layer on top of it, just to make it a little bit more interesting, (laughs) you've got the management of the way that those powers flow through the different governments of the United Kingdom. Uh, So, so many of these powers are in uh, otherwise devolved space. How are these devolved to Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales? How are they going to be managed between the Scottish government, the Welsh government? Northern Ireland, and those governments and are pretty UK cross government. about this at the moment, aren't those, they? Feeling is, these powers are sort of seeping back to Westminster. They, that was the concern that there was going to be a so-called power grab, that all of these so agriculture and fisheries and environmental policy would all be centralised back in, in, in Wild. That was always a bit exaggerated. But the key point is that these powers uh, will have to be exercised in a way uh, where essentially they're shared because there are cross-border impacts mm. of uh, the management of these powers. That That's why uh, they were held at the European level in the first place. And one of the ironies of Brexit um, is that there is no legislation that controls the internal market of the United Kingdom itself. Which is something we we haven't really thought about. We don't think of the UK as having an internal market at all. We didn't have to think about it. Devolution happened after we joined the EU. So the single market regulation essentially regulated that market on our behalf. Coming out of the single market, everybody's slightly waking up to the fact now. uh, So sending a carrot from Scotland to England might now have to have a lot of, um, well, if not paperwork of it, at least a lot well, of thought it, about regulation. It, it, it will it, it will do if the, which is unlikely in the, event, in, in the, the case of a carrot, if the Scottish government decided carrots needed different uh, 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 different labelling. I'm on trying them. to think, they have some uh, let, let, over agriculture. Let, let me give you a, a, more, uh, a more apposite example, perhaps. If the Scottish government decides that it's going to subsidise mm. subsidise ewes that are, are raised on the hills in the borders, the lambs from those ewes will go into the same markets uh, as the lambs from um, sheep raised in Cumbria and Northumberland. Uh, and if you have that differential in subsidy regimes, it gives an unfair competitive advantage essentially to to the farmers who are neighbouring onto the English farms. Um, So in order to have a system that preserves and manages that uh, internal market, the governments are going to have to agree frameworks uh, which manage uh, those potential divergences. So actually at the same time that the government is negotiating with the EU, it's going to have to think about how uh, England, if you like, uh, negotiates with Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, and, and there, of course, there is a there is a tension because it's England has no capacity to negotiate. One of the peculiarities of our system, there is no representation for England. So the UK government has to negotiate on behalf of the UK as a whole, if you like, but also uh, on behalf of England, and that's one of the stresses and strains in the machinery of intergovernmental relations because the UK is, in a sense, both judge and jury uh, when it comes to the affairs of England, and, and that sets up some stress yeah. from the Scottish government in particular. Counterintuitively, do you almost think this could give Scotland and Wales more power uh, 
over how these well, things work. I think the net result of this, I think that the, the UK government is ultimately going to have to accept the logic of shared powers. Yeah. And that means approaching the management of these issues in a collaborative, cooperative manner, accepting that the, the governments of the other parts of the UK have real power in this space. And in order to get UK-wide solutions, it means working together. This has got a little bit countercultural, and of course it is very difficult when you've got a government in Scotland and one of the parties in the Northern Ireland executive dedicated to dismantling the United Kingdom. Who, but, who want every bit of ammunition, so to speak, to, exactly. to be able to say, look, Westminster is riding roughshod over us, so they're not going to be rushing necessarily no, to collaborate or of course, seem to be collaborating. But the, uh, the UK government committed to preserving the union of the United Kingdom is going to have to think hard and creatively uh, about how it persuades the people of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland that staying in the union is best for their long-term interests. It is unlikely to achieve that by taking a very aggressive position vis-à-vis uh, -vis its counterparts in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But that, I, a little prediction for you, is going to be one of the big stories of this administration. Yeah, it's the, these are the difficult questions that we didn't have to answer at the end of the 90s because we had the EU. You could say Scotland will give you full control over agriculture, but we knew that there was the EU framework that would box them in. I mean, one of the other... You're thinking of the end of the 90s because it was the beginning devolution. of devolution. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then the other, the big complication with these devolved powers is also that if you look at back to the Northern Ireland Protocol, it's actually the Northern Ireland executive who will be responsible for delivering most of what the UK has signed up to in the withdrawal agreement. And there are ministers there saying, we're just not going to do it. So the UK government then doesn't really have very many levers to force them to do it. So they could end up with lots of problems with the Northern Ireland executive just saying, we don't like that deal and we're not going to implement we don't, it. We don't like, for example, all these all these checks, the all, checks. all this paperwork that, that, that that's handicapping Northern Ireland, so we're just not going to do it. Particularly the regulatory checks, yeah. And what happens then? The UK is in breach of the withdrawal agreement and um, the EU can take us to the ECJ, the European Court. If that's part of the deal. Yeah. It is part of the deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, it is. Right, so, right, right. Exactly. I mean, so if you look at the current government's big red lines on absolutely no role for European institutions, um, the deal that they signed and have entered into force and ran an election on actually breaches a few of their, um, their new red lines. So there is a role for the ECJ. There's a role for the European Commission on UK-wide state aid decisions. Um, it's almost as if Brexit isn't done. It's almost <laughs> as if. Let's look across the Atlantic. For many of Brexit's biggest cheerleaders, the whole point of the exercise was to enable Britain to sign free trade deals around the world. Joe, we've also seen the mandate for a US trade deal published. How is it different from the one for the EU? Well, there are a lot of similarities between the US mandate and the one that was published for the EU. They are aiming for similar sorts of things, ambitious free trade agreements. There are some areas where um, it's less ambitious with the US than with the EU, reflecting our kind of closer uh, relationship currently with the what EU. You, what do you mean by ambitious? More generous or less? So I think the agreement with the US is less ambitious in some areas, particularly on trade in goods, because we are less integrated uh, and we rely on less integrated supply chains. So it's trying to fix a different problem, if you like. Um, but peculiarly, there are some areas where we seem to be offering more to the US than we're prepared to offer to the EU, in particular on uh, the issue of level playing field, this thing that the EU cares so much about ensuring fair competition. Not trying to give ourselves an unfair advantage. 
to exactly. It. But what what have we said that we would do with the US that we won't at this point with the? So we have told the US that there will be certain standards we'll sign up to on the environment and workers' rights, which will be enforceable. So if one side thinks the other one's not playing by the rules, they can pull them up at a dispute resolution mechanism. Um, whereas with the, our mandate with the EU, we've said those provisions should not be covered by any mechanism for settling dispute. We don't want them to be enforceable. The EU is very keen that we are. So I imagine. Um, EU negotiators will have picked up on that discrepancy and will be asking their counterparts,、uh, the UK negotiators, this week why it is we're prepared to give the US stuff that we're not willing to give the EU. So, is it really clever to try to be doing both at once? Well, there's there's two sides to this, isn't there? There's one argument that this gives us leverage that the EU is worried that we will do this great deal with the US and we will, they will then have this competitor on their doorstep. The other argument is that there's very limited capacity in Whitehall for actually running these kinds of talks. There are actually some big decisions, strategic decisions, that it's not clear we've actually taken、um, about、um, what we want with our trade around the world. That each of these sides、um, will poke at. So things like、um, what we want to do with investor-state dispute settlement. These really、What、technical. So this is about whether Sorry, companies <laughs> from one side can challenge government actors if they think that they're not playing by the rules and they're challenging, they're kind of affecting their investments. Not interesting, kind of big strategic Brexit question, but pretty important if you're planning to sit round the table with someone and thrash out a however many thousand-page trade agreement.、Um, and it's not clear we've had the answer to any of these questions because of the political roadblocks we've had over the last few years.、Mm. Philip, does it work having ever the government trying to do two trade deals at once? They've been run by different bits of government,、mm. and that may explain to some extent the different tonality、um, in the two in the two documents. The government's capable of running、uh, both of them, but、uh, the US deal is going to—they're、uh, going to seek to strike a deal in what is an election year in the US. Uh, Joe described it as an ambitious deal, ambitious in a in a context, but if you look at the Uh, what the government is saying about the net economic benefit, even topside for the US deal, is 0.16 percent increase in the UK's GDP. This plays against what the government's economists have said about the downside of the sort of deal we're going to do with the EU. A free trade agreement will lead to lost growth of between. Say around four and seven, eight, possibly even if we have no trade deal, up to nine percent. So, so you, completely, uh, completely uh, different order of magnitude from is, from the, the potential benefits from the US. And, and this says something about the nature of our trade. Forty-five percent of our trade, roughly speaking, at the moment is in goods and services with the EU.、Uh, it's about sixteen percent, I think, to memory, with the, with the US.、Um, but the trade pattern's relatively well established with with the US.、Uh, frankly, the sort of deal that's envisaged is. Not going to prise open much more、uh, from those trade routes. If you listen to the government's rhetoric,、um, bigging up the benefits of free trade with the US and the rest of the world, while at the same time coming out of the biggest, most successful free trade arrangement the world has ever seen, there is a, there is a little bit of a clash in the rhetoric around all of that. Well, the rhetoric isn't very full of numbers, as as you pointed out. Occasionally, these numbers have been、uh, have, have slid out of the government or been dragged out by, by Parliament.、Um, do you think that、um, 
it's something the government will get more precise about in forecasting? Well, to be fair to the government, uh, actually the numbers on the impact of the EU deal were all published. They're all in the public domain. We're published in November 2018. Uh, it's the what we what we haven't seen and is updating of those assessments and the impact assessment. And would one would rather hope that given the scale and the importance of the EU-UK deal, that the government would start to put numbers uh, on what they estimate to be the impact uh, on trade between the UK and the EU over time from the sort of deal that they envisage. And we've got the budget coming up uh, March the 12th, um, which is, has to take account of what the future of the economy looks like. Yeah, because that was one of the big differences between the UK, the US and the EU mandate. Uh, the US mandate, as we've just been talking about, included an economic assessment. We didn't get that with this government's version of the future with the EU. Um, and actually it's distanced itself from government's previous modelling on that even though it uses the exact same model, the same tech that produced what they've given for the US. So they seem to pick and choose when they like to use this model. Um, and as sooner or later, you'd think they'd have to put something else out on the EU. And as well as tensions on the modelling and the detail of this, there's tensions in the politics. Uh, we've outsourced the politics of trade to the EU for the last uh, however many uh, years. And uh, that's going to come roaring back in. It's not just chlorinated chicken and hormone beef, but those are the you know the poster boys of uh, of, of, of this debate. Um, and I think we, we can expect to see increasing tensions between uh, number 10, uh, who will want to pursue their political message, um, the EU negotiating team and the Department for International Trade, who are all trying to get different things and those tensions are going to play out across across government. Where do we think uh, we'll be by the end of the year? With the US? Both. Um, so with the US, I think there at best will be a kind of token agreement that is to do with trade but is not a trade agreement and I think there will be a trade agreement with the EU if I had to bet uh, but I think there will be a big question about when it comes into force because I don't think the current timelines work. I think something superficial with the US uh, I think uh, who knows on the EU, but um, the government's revealed preference uh, last year was to uh, create a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors and then uh, and then to do a deal that avoided uh, a lot of uh, economic and political fallout. So I suspect something will be done. Uh, the other thing I'd mention on, on trade is, is a nod to a lot of what Philip did is uh, the, the actual important legwork on this is the continuity trade agreements that um, uh, that will allow trade to sustain uh, 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 similar to how it did with, with, with non-EU countries based on our membership of the EU. So a very thin deal uh, is the best we'll get from the US this year. It will be more symbolic than significant, I think, in trade terms. With the EU, uh, the overwhelming economic logic is for both sides is to get a deal done. So that edges it uh, for me into territory of getting a deal over the line. I suspect we won't know until pretty much the last minute. And the last minute in this context is actually not the end of the year. It's mid-late October in order to allow time for ratification. So the really important months in this process are like to be back end of August, September and October. Now, a decade ago, the concept of universal credit first appeared in a report authored by Ian Duncan Smith. This massive overhaul of the welfare system, which merged the six main existing benefits into one single monthly benefit, became a flagship reform of the coalition government. But it's been dogged by criticism ever since. And this week, a new report from the IFG takes stock of its progress. And the report's author, Nick Timmins, joins us in the studio. Welcome. 
Um, Nick, universal credit has been loathed, pilloried, cited by the Labour opposition before the election as one of the first things it would get rid of. Is it too tainted to persist with? Uh, Well, it certainly had a very, very, very difficult launch. I mean, all sorts of things went wrong with it. Uh, But the truth is it's really reached the point of no return. Uh, the, all of the machinery for the old benefits that it's replacing has been dismantled. Um, it's now operating in all offices. And if you were to try and re- you know, replace it, you'd be facing an upheaval on a similar sort of scale to the introduction of universal credit in the first place. All right. So th- this is one of the main points you make in your report. You're saying, look, we cannot get rid of it. No one, and no one should think of getting rid of it. So we're going to have to fix it. Yeah, essentially, yes. I mean, in theory, you could go and replace it, but you'd be in a hu- another huge upheaval and you create a different set of winners and losers to the ones that Universal Credit replaces. So the challenge has to be to make it work better. And, you know, to be fair, there have been a bunch of steps taken, not all of which are yet in place, which will make it work better. I mean, people are many, many more people are now being paid on time than its early days. And the government has introduced what are technical run-ons, sort of extensions of benefit for those already in the system. So they get two weeks of housing benefit and JSA and income support well, as they move across. JSA? Job Seekers Allowance, yeah. the unemployment yep. benefit. It used to be called unemployment benefit. It that did. was a nice, clear name for it. Um, so what that will do is reduce – you get two weeks of money and then the, the wait effectively becomes three weeks rather than five weeks. Uh, And there are advances available for that, but these are loans, but it will mean the loans will need to be smaller. So the transition to universal credit will be a lot, will progressively become simpler for a lot of people. Part of the problem is that doesn't cover everyone. It doesn't cover entirely new claims and it doesn't cover those moving across from tax credits, this sort of in-work benefit for people on lower pay. So what's the problem there? Well, the problem there is they will also face the five-week wait. Uh, Now... So far, the, the moment... This, this is really, I mean, this has been one of the main problems with it, hasn't it? The, the, just the sheer, uh, the, the number of weeks, about five weeks. That, that it indeed, indeed. And, you can, and you can hands. see that the government has taken steps to reduce that yes. by introducing these extensions of benefit, but it doesn't apply to everybody. Yeah. So one of the proposals in the report is that there, sh- is that, uh, you know, there should be a two-week payment of benefit, likely benefit, for all claimants. So the sh- wait gets shorter, the loans get smaller. And so that's the first proposition. Uh, the second is that there is a huge amount of historic social security debt in the system. And this is this is fascinating. This is something you've you've spent a lot of time on on the report. You, can you just tell us about it about, yeah, how, well, about where, where this came from? Well, there's about ten billion knocking around one way and another. Uh, the largest single element, which is about six billion, is overpayments of tax credits, past overpayments of tax credits. So this and, is the system. This is overpaying people, perhaps perhaps because their fortunes improved or something during the year. Yep. Yeah, but it's all built up and now in it's theory, built, it's they, built they, up, they owe this money. It's, it's built up because of the way tax credits yeah. work. So they were they're based on an initial estimate of income, past income, and once awarded they're paid for a year. Uh, and, at, and but they're in a sense a temporary award which gets finalized at the end of the year. And what is meant to happen is people report any change of circumstances in the year that give them more money or less money. But A, not everybody grasps that. B, HMRC isn't always fast at making the adjustments when they are told. And so you end up with big overpayments. And that's right. been a problem all the way through from when they were launched. Right. And so in you know, you know, ordinary terms, someone will get this money, very you know, go and spend it, and then suddenly be told at the end of the year or now. They had to um, pay it back. They have to pay they it back pay and back. they don't have that money at all. They don't have that money. Quite a lot of the, if you, depending what's happened to you, if you've moved in and out of jobs, you may long ago, not, you may not even be aware you've got this debt. And as soon as you go on to UC, it starts to be reclaimed. 
And at the moment, 20% of you claimants of UC are having 30% or more of their standard allowance, which is basically the amount you get to live on other than for rent, deducted to pay off this old debt. And that's clearly causing hardship because the rates of benefit in universal credit are not what anyone describes as hugely generous. And it's pushing the people down below even that. Exactly. Um, so it's exactly. clawing back money exactly. and driving them down to very, exactly. very low levels exactly. of income. So the proposition in the report is that at least some of this should be written off uh, when you, if you certainly the oldest sort of debt. Uh, on the alternative, if you want to carry on reclaiming it, it needs to be reclaimed at a much slower rate so that you might say, for the sake of argument, not 10% off rather than 30%. Uh, so and that would, just to spread uh, it out. Spread it out. Uh, so much, much yes, so, so that the, the level at which people are living below the standard rate of UC would go on for longer, but it would be much less punishing than it is now. And the truth is, if you did that, you know, some of the debt would anyway become unrecoverable over time just because of the way... You, you just couldn't, you couldn't you would, give out. I mean, a hard-hearted person from the Treasury might say, look, we have to try and... Uh, reclaim this money from people because, uh, you know, if we don't reclaim this six well, million, well, in, then indeed, this money we've got to raise in, some, in, somewhere in, else. In, indeed, and it was one of the conditions for universal credit going ahead that this rather efficient debt recovery machine was built into UC. Uh, so but, but a hard-hearted person for the Treasury would indeed say yeah. that. But it, the reality is it may leave a lot of people who are not very good will, at planning will, their finances at all um, being told suddenly they've got to repay all this. And yes, and you have to remember that at the moment people only move on to universal credit when their circumstances change. But the plan is to remove, is, is to move over the existing stock of claimants whose circumstances have not changed. And that's going to be three million people on tax credits and a load of tax credit debt is going to come across with them and therefore their rewards will be reduced by more than, you know, by more than any advance they've taken. So it's a real problem. Yeah. yeah. Philip and Alex, I mean, you as civil servants, you know, you looked at these big systems being, um, you know, put in place. And, uh, and uh, you know, and then uh, this is not the only example of where things suddenly after some years seem to be uh, getting into a lot of trouble. Is there thing, are there things that could be anticipated more clearly or do, does something as ambitious as this always produce unexpected consequences? I think something of this scale is bound to throw up uh, things that weren't anticipated. It's just the, the way that these very big systems operate. To be to give credit to the folk who designed UC, uh, they didn't try and do it as a big bang. They did seek to roll it out gradually across different offices. They started with people who were changing circumstances rather than going for the for the the, the whole of the stock. So they have had time to learn, uh, but clearly through that process these big major issues have been thrown up what i don't know is the extent to which these problems have been caused by the relatively ungenerous nature of the financial settlement for uc where the, the budget was essentially cut back as at part the same of the time as making drive. these big exactly. changes so if the yeah. parameters had been a bit a bit wider a bit more greater preparedness to spend money on UC, uh, get into the claimants, and some of these problems would undoubtedly have been reduced. But trying to do a very, very big system change at the same time as taking money out of a system, that is a recipe for difficult circumstances. Yeah, I know. I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the points the report makes mm. is that UC has introduced, not only was its original design cut back in terms of the amount of money that went in, it was also launched at the same time as a whole other bunch of cuts were being made to working age social security, some of which UC has been blamed for, but is not intrinsically part of the design. And to a really ambitious time frame, uh, which the, I mean, the, to your original question, Bronwyn, I mean, there's a, uh, there's a 
question about how the you know the, the political imperatives around the timing match with the delivery uh, realities, and you know it's 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 interesting in this example to see delivery. Uh, realities asserting themselves in the end over the political timeline. I don't want to, uh, uh, I don't want to hark back too much to uh, uh, Patel Rutnam, but um, there's an, you know, there's an interesting parallel with Robert Devereux and Ian Duncan Smith, and the, uh, it's no secret that there were tensions there. Robert Devereux was the permanent secretary, the permanent secretary. At the time. Um, yeah. uh, and it's no secret there were tensions there, and a lot of that was about um, ambition and timing. Yes, and, I mean uh, the original timetable uh, looked crazy. So I mean, even for someone on the outside, I remember the white paper coming out saying it was all when it was all going to be in by, and I thought, you'll never do that. It's such a huge change programme. So what, what's realistic? When do you think this will be up and running? Well, if, the current if, timetable, I mean, it keeps slipping. <laughs> the current timetable is 2024. Uh, and I wouldn't absolutely bet that will be achieved because all right, so tra- start, tra- start, tra- transferring yeah. all the existing stock across is going to have to be done very, very carefully, particularly given the track record. All right, so start to finish, how long would that make it? Uh, it'll be, from the white paper, it'll be 13 years. Yeah, well, that sounds um, entirely plausible. We'll have to see with a tiny bit more money round, or so we think ahead of the budget, whether they take uh, mm. notice of your recommendations to write off some of this. But, uh, Nick, thanks very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure. Norman Lamb was that rarest of MPs in the last Parliament, a Liberal Democrat who wasn't trying to stop Brexit. He lost the argument, but given his party's poor showing in the 2019 general election, perhaps he was right all along. A survivor of the coalition years, a defeated leadership candidate in 2015, Norman Lamb spoke to Kath Haddon. You stood to be Lib Dem leader in 2015. Um, Obviously, the years since then have been dominated by Brexit. Do you think if you had been leader, would you have come to a different position than the party did? Uh, Well, I couldn't have taken the party down the route that it went, Uh, And I think that it took a wrong route. Um, It might have been impossible to take it in a different direction. Um, There are a lot of people within the party, uh, particularly those people who joined from Labour through the Social Democrat route, who had a a very principled position uh, of being pro-Europeans. But I always felt that we were... Uh, we came across as uncritically pro-European. We we lost our critical faculties when it came to the EU. And I felt that, you know, as we, in our response to the uh, referendum result, we, uh, I think, made fatal mistakes. We uh, came across as being high-handed, you know, fully signed up members of the metropolitan elite, not listening to people in the country, many of whom were our natural supporters, actually. Uh, I think about my own constituency, and uh, I found that, that, we, that the party was alienating decent people who had always voted Lib Dem uh, in the period that I was there, um, but just felt he was an arrogant party, failing, refusing to listen to how people were voted. And I think it will go down as a historic miscalculation by... Remainers, not just Lib Dems, but people in the Labour Party as well, to refuse to engage in any debate about the sort of Brexit we would end up with, and the and it was a sort of high wire act. It was, you know, we will risk everything in the hope that we might get a uh, another referendum and reverse this awful decision. 
I was arguing that we ought to be engaging in the discussion and securing a close relationship that would maintain a lot of what was positive about uh, uh, the EU um, and have a sort of relationship like Norway had has, a safe landing place, as it were. But there was a complete refusal to even engage in any consideration of that. And I thought it was naive. I thought it was felt like student politics uh, and uh, sort of posturing. Uh, and when the new party emerged from the Labour Party with the breakaway independent group, there was then this ludicrous uh, uh, pursuit of being more pure on uh, remain the Remain stance than anyone else. So that uh, incentivised us to become more and more extreme and to turn off more and more people, uh, to give people a positive reason to vote against us. Uh, so I think the whole thing was a disaster. Okay, but the Labour leadership contest has now been going on for a month and a half. It has another month to go, and only then will the race to succeed Joe Swinson take over. Um, Is the Lib Dem leadership contest going to be good for the party? Well, only if it results in some proper examination of what we stand or what the party stands for, uh, what it what its role is. Um, The danger, of course, in a leadership contest and you know I witnessed this myself when I stood is that you pander to um, the party membership in order to get yourself elected so uh, you the day unless you go into a leadership contest in an incredibly strong position um, and Blair in a way uh, benefited I think from this it gave him the opportunity to take the party on Tim had spent the five years of the coalition preparing to be leader and seducing the party and so forth. Uh, and so I had massive ground to make up very, very quickly. And it's, it's hard in those circumstances to challenge the party. But that's what it needs now. If it's to have any uh, sort of role or purpose, uh, we can't be a shadow, a sort of shallow imitation of anything else. Um, and it's quite hard at the moment to define uh, a route back to uh, relevance for the Lib Dems. The the country, I think, needs a strong liberal progressive force. The progressive liberal centre and centre-left actually needs to come up with a compelling vision for our country rather than fighting old battles, which is what the Lib Dems did in the aftermath of 2016. Labour are finding themselves caught between the reputation of Tony Blair and the reputation of Jeremy Corbyn. Is the same problem true for the Liberal Democrats between Nick Clegg and, and Joe Swinson? Is the, the Nick Clegg era going to be rehabilitated in this contest? Well, I mean, it's, it's odd because Joe Swinson uh, in government was, I think, you know, philosophically not far from uh, Nick Clegg. I mean, it, it wasn't as if these are two great diametrically opposed wings of the party as you have with Blair and Corbyn. Um, but there was, there was, to a degree, a rubbishing of the sort of Nick Clegg coalition period, even though it's fair to say that the party, a lot of the party continues to love Nick Clegg. Um, you know, the, the, there isn't the same hatred of him as there is with Blair and the Labour Party. Um, so I think that, um, uh, and I hope that there will be a re- rehabilitation of uh, liberal thinking, you know, a liberal analysis of um, sort of rejecting the state doing everything, uh, but uh, crafting a, 
um, an agenda which is liberal in its core, but which recognises that if the capitalist system is to survive, it needs to change quite radically uh, to ensure that everyone benefits from it. Um, and I think you can apply liberal principles to craft quite a compelling vision for our country. But we need that sort of quite radical thinking. That was Norman Lamb speaking to Kath Haddon. Philip, cast your mind back to what seems a long time ago. It's nearly 10 years since the coalition was formed and it barely gets a mention these days. Does it deserve a review? Coalition, I think, in retrospect, looks like a, dare I say, a strong and stable government. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, it is a, it was a, a, a faced very big challenges when it came into power with the uh, the aftermath of the financial crash, the public finances being pretty dire state, uh, but uh, led by two politicians who took a mature approach to what they had to do, uh, worked well together uh, over the piece while uh, in and amongst it all having their rows, uh, which were sometimes quite spicy. Uh, but ultimately, <laughs> they delivered a government uh, that, that sorted out some of the problems the country was facing. Uh, so he's uh, never had that bad a press, but perhaps uh, time to review the benefits of coalition government, where which enforces a degree of collaboration, and collaboration in politics is no bad thing. We've reached the end of a packed episode of Inside Briefing. My thanks to Alex, to Joe, and a big thank you to Philip Rycroft for being with us. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. We live in unpredictable times, but can I ask you for a second prediction? A speculation might be safer for about something we should look out for next week. Joe, what do you reckon? Uh, I'd say the RHI inquiry, which is due to come out, the Renewable Heat Incentive Inquiry in Northern Ireland, uh, which led to Stormont collapsing. Uh, the big inquiry into what happened there will be coming out, I think, on Friday uh, and um, could have big, long-lasting implications, I think, for Northern Ireland. I think that's a real one to watch out for. Alex, what do you think? Um, I could say the budget, but that's too easy, so I won't say the budget. But the budget um, is happening uh, next week. The budget is happening next week on the uh, uh, on the 11th. Um, uh, I'm going to go international and uh, uh, look at, um, for Election Geeks, Israel, which is a fascinating case study in how many elections you can pack into one year. Um, uh, the election was on Monday. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was uh, three seats short, short of majority, and so there'll be that always uh, interesting process of coalition forming and seeing whether he can uh, whether he can form a government, which of course has significant implications for the UK's interest in the Middle East. Philip, what do you reckon? So I, I find it difficult to get away from my old job in some respects. What I'm going to be watching out for is all the gossip that will emerge uh, into public space from the negotiations that have been going on this week. That's when we'll learn uh, just how it's gone, what position the both sides were taking, how they felt about the negotiations. All of this stuff will will emerge um, through the nooks and crannies of the system and it'll be fascinating as an insight to the early positioning in, in the most critical negotiation the UK has faced for many a year on the future relationship with the EU. You may have left, but you're still in touch with the gossip. <laughs> I'm trying to stay in touch with the gossip. <laughs> nooks and crannies is a very technical phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know the mechanism. Thank you. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We'll be back next Friday with next week's podcast, barring emergency podcasts for unforeseen events, of course, you never know. Do subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, bookmark us on Acast, add us to your Spotify favourites, or stay connected wherever you get your podcasts. 
and check out our website instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our work. We'll see you next week for another Inside Briefing. Inside Briefing.